Thank you so much, John, for reading God's Word to us and leading service and Elder Adrian and the music team as well. This morning, I ask you to please keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 14 so as to uh, follow God's Word. And I think you also find it helpful uh, to download and use the outline in the e-bulletin on our website. Please join me in prayer together first. Our Lord and our God, now as we hear your word, please fill us with your spirit. Soften our hearts that we may delight in your presence. Sharpen our minds that we may discern your, will, your truth. Shape our wills that we may desire your ways. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, let me just do a quick survey here. Uh, I see uh, roughly 50% of here, us here are guys, but some of the ladies here may also be. Right? Let me just see a show of hands. How many of you here are soccer fans? Right? Don't be shy. Okay, I'm one too. The, most of you don't dare to admit. Huh? <laughs> okay, if you're a soccer fan, then you know that the, the match to watch tonight, right? It's Manchester City versus Liverpool. Okay, and I'm a Liverpool fan, so I'm not sure whether I'll be awake tonight, uh, but I'll definitely be checking the news first thing in the morning. Right? Why is this the match to watch? Because these are the two top teams in the Premier League table right now, and they are separated by just one point. Okay, so tonight could determine the, the outcome of the league. But you will also know that the most iconic and yet controversial goal in history is arguably, arguably is the one by Argentinian star Diego Maradona, which was scored against England in the 1986 World Cup quarterfinal. And this sport jersey, this match jersey that he wore that day, will be put on auction later this month. And guess what? They are expecting it to sell over 4 million pounds. That's about 7 million Singapore dollars. Now, why is this goal so famous or perhaps infamous? Because so many people suspected, and Mar Maradona himself would later admit, that he had secretly punched the ball rather than hit the ball into the net. Now, here is what the auction site says. Maradona would say, he told his teammates, I told them, come hug me, or the referee isn't going to allow it. See, he knew that it was a foul. After the match, Maradona was quoted saying that he made the goal a little with the head of Maradona and a little with the hand of God. From then on, this came to be known as the hand of God goal. So, was Maradona's goal achieved by his flair, by his skill? It's certainly undeniable that he was a most talented player, right? His second goal in that same match was voted as the goal of the century. Or perhaps this was pure luck, a fluke, or as he calls it, the hand of God. Or was it perhaps what many suspected to be the truth, a deliberate foul, an illegal use of the hand to change the ball's tra trajectory? Whether it was flair, fluke, or foul, Maradona's historic goal has made this old jersey valued to be worth at least $7 million. 
Now, how about Jesus's most iconic and controversial accomplishment? His suffering and death on the cross on that first Good Friday. What is the point of the Lord's extreme suffering and violent execution? What we call Christ's passion. Was this according to God's divine plan and purpose by the hand of God? Or was it simply the result of human plots and the failure of his disciples by the hate of men? We'll be exploring this today by looking at Mark chapter 14. Okay? And how you and I answer this question will reveal how we evaluate the worth of the Lord Jesus and his work on the cross. It will also determine how God will evaluate us, both our present standing with him, as well as our eternal destiny. So first we'll be seeing how the plot thickens in Mark chapter 14, as the conspirator's deviousness is being contrasted with a woman's devotion to Jesus. And then God's plan will be explained by the Lord, who redefines the Jewish Passover by his impending death. Next, the people around Jesus will all scatter as the disciples' desertion of Jesus will contrast with Jesus' devotion to his Father's will. And then finally, we'll draw some lessons for ourselves. So first, we read in chapter 14, verse 1, that it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, this reference to the Passover should make sense to you if you've been reading the Old Testament book of Exodus, right, as we did as a church last year. This Jewish Passover, along with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which follows after, it is the, the first and the only Jewish festival mentioned here in Mark's Gospel, and it forms the backdrop for everything that we're going to read and how we are to understand everything that follows on from here. In Exodus chapter 12, each Israelite household was instructed to take an unblemished male lamb, kill it, and put its blood on their doorpost on that day which is called the Passover. And that night, God would pass over the firstborns of Israel as he judged and killed all the firstborns of Egypt in order to compel Pharaoh to free Israel, God's people. Now, the Passover lamb was to take the place of every Israelite firstborn and rescue them from death. Let's keep reading. As the Passover draws near, the chief priests and the scribes was seeking how to receive the Christ, to welcome him, who had come on this special day to fulfill God's historic deliverance of his people. That's what you would expect to read, right? That the, the religious leaders welcome Jesus. But unfortunately, that's not what it says. Instead, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So instead of receiving Jesus as the Christ, as God's promised Savior King, the religious leaders were deviously and diabolically plotting against him. 
They wanted to arrest Jesus and kill him secretively, but they were in a bit of a, a bit of a fix. How to do so without causing an uproar among the pilgrim crowd that had come to Jerusalem? You see, these people who had come out for the festival had just welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem as the son of David. And so the leaders have a dilemma. And this is like when an unwelcome guest comes to visit during Chinese New Year or Christmas, right? It comes to visit you. You know, this is the uncle and auntie who, who ask every year, how did you score in your exams? Which school did you get into? Why still no girlfriend or boyfriend yet? Why haven't you gotten married? Why no children yet? You know, every stage of your life, they have a question for you. And you just want to get rid of them in your heart. But you can't, you can't afford to offend them or to make your parents angry. Right? Jesus was like the unwelcome guest who confronted the leaders of their sins and insecurities. And the religious leader's dilemma was resolved only when in verse 10, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, Judas Iscariot's betrayer, I think, would have been surprising to his fellow disciples, though perhaps not to us. Right? After all, he was one of the twelve the 12 whom Jesus had appointed and named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons back in chapter 3. Moreover, we also know that Judas was the one entrusted with the money back. He was the trusted one, one among the apostles, the apostolic treasurer in a sense. It's always the betrayer of a good friend, a close friend, that hurts the most, right? Just like in the case of Marcus Junius Brutus, who assassinated Julius Caesar in the first century, uh, in the first century BC, right, 44 BC in Rome, or the 17th century Chinese general, some of you would know his name, Wu Sankui, right? Who defected to the, to the Manchus and thus ended the Ming Dynasty. But later on, he also betrayed the Manchus, the Qing Dynasty, by declaring himself as the emperor. So these are the kind of traitors that history loves to hate. But before Mark presents to us Judas's treachery as the solution to the leader's dilemma, he then interjects the narrative with a story of a woman who anointed Jesus. In verse 3, we read, and while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now notice what this woman did for Jesus. She took an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. This flask contains expensive, unadulterated perfume that was made from the spike nut plant. And it was valued by the disciples. They, they knew their staff, right? It was valued at more than 300 denarii, which is around a year's wages. 
Perhaps a modern equivalent of this would be this luxurious perfume from Louis Vuitton. Right? It's going at 24,000 Singapore dollars per liter. Now, I wouldn't buy this perfume for my wife, though I love her very much. Right? But this woman spares no expense to give her all for Jesus. She broke the flask, perhaps the neck of the jar, and poured it over his head. The perfume is completely expended. No expense spared. Her display of total abandonment and devotion to Jesus is a beautiful picture of the kind of discipleship that the Lord demands in Mark chapter 8. In verse 34, he calls us to deny oneself, take up one's cross, and follow him, to lose one's life for him. But notice that the location for this, this setting is actually Simon the leper's house in Bethany. But there has been no mention of the Lord going outside of Jerusalem ever since the end of chapter 11. And if we were to compare Mark's gospel's account with John chapter 12, this is a very likely timeline. So if you look at the two uh, lines in red, this anointing at Bethany really took place the Saturday before, Saturday before Good Friday. But it is being recorded by Mark out of his original timeline. In other words, Mark here again purposefully adopts the sandwiching technique to illustrate a point. So as we see this, I hope that you have had your breakfast so it doesn't cause you to, your stomach to rumble. This is a double burger this time, right? With the woman's preparation of Jesus' body for burial, sandwiched by the plot against Jesus, and then it's further sandwiched by the events of the Passover. So what's the point that Mark is making here? I think it is to contrast the devotion of the woman with the deviousness of Judas and the religious leaders. But there is also a further contrast as well of this woman's devotion and the disciples' devaluation of Jesus. In verse 4, we see, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like this? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Verse 6, But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she's done will be told in memory of her. See, here the, the disciples were deriding the woman. Sorry, in the next slide. The disciples were deriding the woman because they saw her act as a waste of precious perfume on Jesus. But the woman saw Jesus' infinite worth, and she gave her all for him. And the Lord commends her for doing this, for doing, he calls it a beautiful thing. Moreover, her act of devotion was seen by the Lord as preparation of his body for burial. 
In other words, Jesus is saying that this is the only person, this woman believed Jesus' predictions, that he would suffer, die, and rise again. But the disciples didn't take Jesus seriously. The fact that we are reading this passage today confirms the words say, the, the, the Lord saying that her actions will be told in memory of her, that this is commendable behavior. Now let's move on to the next section, to our next point, where God's plan will be explained in Jesus' redefinition of the Passover by his death. In verse 12, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Now, the Passover is now fully in sight. Right? There are four references to it here in these five verses. Just as with the procurement of the coat in Mark chapter 11, Jesus here shows either foreknowledge of the proceedings or more likely, I think, foresight in making preparations. Now, this foresight is what I lack. So often, I'll bring my wife out you know, on special occasions to go to restaurants only to find out that it is by reservations only. So we are turned away. But the Lord is well prepared for this last supper reservations have been made. And so in verse 17, when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve one who's dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he hadn't been born. See, here Jesus predicts the betrayer of Judas, and this shows that he does know what is coming upon him, and even how precisely it will come. In fact, it says that it is written of him that his coming suffering and death are according to the prophecy of Scripture about the Messiah. But the sovereign plan of God does not excuse the treacherous plot of Judas. And so the Lord pronounces, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he hadn't been born. Then later in verse 22, as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this, take, this is my body. And he took a cup 
And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Mark uses the same verbs or the four action words here as in Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. And now we see, we get to see how these two feeding miracles really foreshadow Jesus' life-giving sacrificial work on the cross. Next, as the host of the Passover meal, Jesus redefines some items in the traditional meal and applies it to himself. He says of the unleavened bread, this is my body, and this body will be broken for us on the cross. And of the third cup of the Passover meal, he said, this is my blood of the covenant. Did you notice that in all the preparations for this Passover, there's one crucial missing element. What's that? And let me tell you, this is worse than forgetting to buy a cake for someone's birthday. It is more like having the birthday boy or girl missing. You forgot to invite them for their own party. Right? The central focus of that first Passover was that lamb, the lamb that was killed and eaten by the household and whose blood was put on the doorpost. This is my body. Jesus is giving himself as that missing lamb. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And then taking the cup, the Lord Jesus then said, this is my blood of the covenant. And here he was alluding to the institution of the Mosaic covenant in Exodus chapter 24. There in Exodus 24, as Moses sprinkled the blood of animal sacrifices on the people of Israel, he declares, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you, the blood of the covenant. But Jesus is the sacrifice that institutes the new covenant, the new covenant that God promised to his people in Jeremiah chapter 31. Moreover, Jesus also says that his blood is poured out for many. And that's alluding to the substitutionary death of God's righteous servant in Isaiah chapter 53, one of Isaiah's servant songs. And there God says, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercessions for the transgressors. In short, the Lord's substitutionary death for us on our behalf would atone for the sin of many people and make us right with God. So by, by redefining the Passover meal in light of his death, the Lord Jesus explains God's plan to save humanity. And that is that he himself will be sacrificed as God's Passover lamb to rescue God's people from sin and to gather them as a new covenant people of God. Now we come to the third point where we will see Jesus' people scatter 
and the disciples' desertion is contrasted with Jesus' devotion to the Father. From verse 26, after they sang a hymn to close the Passover meal, Jesus and his disciples went out to the Mount of Olives, where Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus predicts here that all his disciples, without any exception, they will desert him. And he quotes from Zechariah 13 verse 7. If you look at the original context of Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah was saying that God will strike down his appointed leader and he will scatter his people in judgment for their sin. Peter understood the Lord's warning here, but he self-assuredly told him, said to Jesus, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And lest we think that Peter was the only one who was overly confident, they all said the same. Now we'll see very soon whether Peter and the other apostles' self-confidence is justified. As they got to Gethsemane, Jesus said to the disciples in verse 32, Sit here while, I'll pray, while I pray. And then bringing the trio of Peter, James, and John with him, Jesus went further still and prayed in distress. He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. In verse 37, finding them asleep, he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. See, the Lord's command to his disciples is given here three times. Watch. They must watch because, as Jesus said, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we see this very quickly in verse 37. As Jesus came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? In verse 40, and again he came and found them sleeping. Verse 41, and he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? See, the disciples responded by sleeping because they cannot stay awake. They cannot stand by their own strength. Now, how about Jesus? In verse 35, we read, And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. In verse 39, And again he went again and prayed, saying the same words. Verse 41, And he came the third time and said to them, See, the, the three times that Jesus prayed is contrasted with the three times the disciples filled and they slept. And the reason why Jesus prays three times is because of the cup of wrath, the storm of God's judgment that was coming upon himself. Three times the Lord prayed, and three times he submitted to his Father's will. 
Hurricane Michael in 2018 was the first Category 5 storm to hit the contiguous United States in over 25 years. It was a severe storm, and this is the aftermath. Mexico Beach in Florida was virtually flattened in the aftermath of Hurricane Michael. All except for this one lone house, this rental home called the Sand Palace. Now, this palace is not made of sand. Its owners had deliberately over-designed the house to withstand more than double the wind speed that was required by the building code. Now, Peter and the other apostles thought that they could withstand the storm that was coming. But although the spirit was willing, their flesh was weak. At the end of the storm, after the storm has passed, only one person will be left standing. In verse 43, Judas brought the crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. When the storm came, it was Jesus alone who stood firm. And that is because Jesus has submitted himself to his Father's will. He knows that everything that's happened to him or happening to him is written in Scripture. See his words in verses 21 and 27. And now he submits himself to his captors so as to let the Scriptures be fulfilled. How then, by contrast, did the disciples respond to the flood, to the storm that came? We see in verse 47, one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servants of the high priest and cut off his ear. This rash disciple, identified as Peter elsewhere, tried to defend Jesus' honor by violent resistance, like that slap that we all seen recently, right? But this was a wrong response. Since Jesus didn't come to lead an uprising as a militaristic king, but he came to suffer and die as a righteous servant. And by the end, as Jesus submitted to arrest, we read very sadly in verse 50, they all left him and fled. In the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Everyone was amazed, right? And I'm sure you are amazed by how the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr uh, Zelensky, he was a comedian turned politician. And yet he chose to stay on with his people and lead the nation in the face of an overwhelming Russian military. More than six weeks later, he continues to stand today with his people. And we can all respect him for that. In the fierce storm of hostility, the Lord Jesus remains standing, devoted to the Father's plan and purpose. But his disciples deserted him for their own lives. Now, what are some implications and lessons we can draw from this? Firstly, you and I may find ourselves to be like the religious leaders. We may be dismissing God's king. We may find him a threat or an irritant in our lives. He's telling us how to live our lives, how to think, and rightly so, right? Because he is our Lord and Master. But we really want to get rid of Jesus in our heart. And yet we are worried. We are worried about what our friends or our, our parents may think about us. And so we are seeking an opportunity to discard Jesus without causing an uproar. That was how I found myself in my youth. 
Right? Encountering Jesus meant the loss of my personal freedom to live life my own way. It was a call to die to self and to live for him. Jesus confronted my sins of pride and lust and greed. And I couldn't wait to get away from him. But at that time, church attendance was part of my boys' brigade parade. So I was forced to stick around as the Spirit then gives me new life and the Lord Jesus redeemed me. You may be in a similar situation today. right? Today you could be here unwillingly and you're thinking how to get out of church next week. I pray that the Lord would do for you what he did for me as you stick around like that fly on the wall. Thank God that some among these religious leaders grew to become followers of Christ, like that Joseph of Arimathea, who would later take courage and ask for Jesus' body to give him a proper barrier. Jesus can save even you as he has saved the rest of us. But like Judas, we may also choose to betray Jesus if it serves our interest and our social standing not to be known as a disciple. So may we take heed, because the words of Jesus is this, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Secondly, as disciples of Jesus, we might also find ourselves despising God's King. Many of us may have become jaded as believers. Right? Like the disciples who saw the woman anointing Jesus, we are puzzled, we are scratching our head by how some people, whether they be missionaries in the field or ordinary Christians here, they love Jesus so much that they spare no expense to give of themselves in total abandonment and devotion to the Lord. But for us, we think of such displays of devotion as wasteful. And we find the, little, the, the things of this world yet so alluring. Perhaps we need to take time, especially this week, to ponder and to see the infinite worth of the Lord Jesus again by reflecting on his grace towards us. This woman loved the Lord Jesus because she knew and she believed that Christ was going to give himself as a sacrifice for her sins. And so she gave of all of herself in gratitude to her Lord and Saviour. If you are introvert like me, then perhaps this pandemic has been a great opportunity for us to distance ourselves and get away from people, to spend time alone. Social distancing was our great excuse not to meet others. I remember Singapore changed the term quite early on, right, from social distancing to safe distancing. Perhaps because it was deemed that social distancing doesn't sound so nice, right? Isolation can lead to or aggravate our depression or other mental issues. But now that Singapore is opening up, we have other worries, right? We've got to go back to office, to school, and to church. Christians can also suffer from isolation as we practice social distancing from one another in church or in the discipleship group. Right? You don't like someone, you just stay away. We can be present on Zoom meetings, right? physically present, but we can be so easily distracted and multitasking away, right? We watch video and then join Bible study. No one knows, right? We can end up despising one another 
through our physical absence from one another. See, social distancing isn't really safe for Christians because you and I really need one another to flourish in this journey of following Jesus. We can learn from and be infected, not with COVID, but infected by brothers and sisters who truly love the Lord and gave their all for Him, just like this woman who anointed the Lord. And as, G as Singapore opens up now, brothers and sisters, friends, let us not give up meeting together in person, whether in our services or as DGs, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. Next, as crisis disciples, we may also end up deserting God's King. Okay? Of course, we don't set out to do so, and we may, we may say, like Peter and the other apostles, we might say that even though they all fall away, I will not. And if I must die with you, I will not deny you. But because the Lord tells us the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak, we will all end up deserting the Lord at the first sight of trouble or temptation. And so very sadly, in recent years, we have seen many world-famous church leaders, like the late uh, Rabbi Zacharias and Bill Hybers, falling because of sexual impropriety or because of bullying against uh, their colleagues. But most recently, just last month, Hillsong Church senior global pastor Brian Houston was forced to step down after being found to have breached his church's moral code by improper behavior towards two women. And we must pray for fallen leaders, but also for their victims. But if men and women like this have fallen into sin and brought dishonor to God, then let me ask, what hope do you and I have as ordinary believers? How can we stand in the storm? Certainly the four of these leaders highlight to us the need, the great need for prayer and accountability among all believers and particularly for high-profile Christian leaders. We must never think of ourselves as beyond temptation, that we will never fall into sin. You know how in WhatsApp or text messages, you can choose your smileys, right? you can choose the skin colors for your hand symbols as well. I thought hard and long about the type of smiley to use and the skin color to choose. In the end, my chosen smiley is a subtle smile, and that reflects my cautious optimism. I choose the yellow skin color, uh, not just because I'm Chinese, but also to remind myself that I am a coward by nature. I'm yellow, and that left to myself, I would rather flee from danger than lose my life for Jesus. So you know the song, uh, were you there when they crucified the Lord? I can, only say, I can say that no, I wasn't there, but it's only because I, had, I might have long deserted the Lord before that. How about you? How can we stand? So in conclusion, all of us, whether we have whatever we have done with the Lord, all of us are really not deserving of God's King. Even these apostles of Christ, who were appointed by Jesus himself to be with him, they failed to watch and pray, and so they fell into temptation. In the end, they deserted the Lord to save their own lives, and we might do that too.
But Jesus assures them that it is all part of God's plan. In verse 27, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. See, even the disciples falling away is part of God's foreknowledge and part of God's sovereign plan. And by God's grace, the reason Lord Jesus will gather them again in Galilee, the place where he first gathered them and caught them, and he will restore them for his service. The Lord Jesus can do the same for you as well, brothers, sisters, friends. Even if we've ever dismissed him, even if we've ever despised him, even if we've ever deserted him. And how does the Lord do that? Well, Zechariah 13 verses 7 to 9 is quoted here by Jesus. Uh, it goes on to say, In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. See, at this point, uh, the only faithful person in this account is the Lord Jesus. All the sheep have been scattered. But the Lord says that he will put his remaining disciples through the fire to refine them so that this faithful remnant will call on him and be restored as his people. How can you and I make sure that we are that faithful remnant? Well, in Zechariah 12 verse 10, uh, God continues to say, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. Verse 1, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. There you have your answer. How do we stand? We stand through the fire only on Christ alone. Jesus Christ, our Lord, was sacrificed on the cross as our Passover lamb. His sight was pierced, and in doing so, it brought forth that fountain of water and blood to cleanse his people from sin and uncleanness. None of us is deserving of God's King. But the good news, brothers and sisters, is that we don't have to be deserving. God's people will stand only by God's grace alone and by believing in His Son. So let me ask you, is Maradona's hand of God shirt really worth $7 million? I leave it to you to decide. As the auction opens on the 30th of April, some of you may want to buy it. Is the Lord Jesus really worth everything we are and we have? Now that is what each one of us must consider with great care. For if the Lord Jesus really died as our sacrificial lamb by God's plan and purpose, and is not the result of human plotting and human failure, then it is only by His blood that you and I will be accepted by God and saved from His wrath. And that is why Jesus is worthy for us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Him. Let us go to God in prayer. Our almighty and loving God, we bless you for the gifts of your word 
and the gift of your Son, our Passover Lamb. We pray now for the grace to believe what we have just heard and to live in ways that honour you above all. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.